Back in 2017, we had a fellow named Dave Priggle on the show. Dave's story was that he had just experienced a serious crash with his KLR650 and was recovering. He'd ridden earlier in life, but he's basically a new rider. He was a few months on the road, then he had this crash. Before this, getting the motorcycle in the first place, that was not a decision that was endorsed by his wife, or his son for that matter. In fact, his wife hated the idea. She was totally against Dave riding motorcycles, and his son thought it was just too risky. His dad shouldn't be doing it. So when Dave had this crash, they fully expected him to just ditch this silly idea of riding motorcycles and return to normal life. And Dave did too, for a while. But no matter how hard he tried, he just couldn't shake it. He really fell in love with riding the motorcycle. And so in lay his dilemma. Now, when Dave came on the show back in 2017 to tell his story, we also asked if his wife would come on and talk about her feelings. We had no idea if she would or what she would be like when she came on. This was huge for her because she wanted nothing to do with motorcycles. And she certainly was not interested in helping us do a show about motorcycling. But she did. She came on and we chatted. And you're going to hear that today. Now, also today, we're going to find out what happened to Dave after the fact, what he learned from the crash and where it took him. And then after that, we're going to talk with Clinton Smout, who has some fantastic tips to get over the fear of a get-off. No matter how fast or what terrain it was in, these tips should really help you with that. All that and a whole bunch more coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Dragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Okay, we're going to begin with some of the original episode that we had Dave Prickle on, so you'll hear his story right from the start. This was originally aired back in 2017. My name is David Prickle. I'm from Springfield, Missouri, and I'm a veterinarian. David, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Springfield. Now I'm trying to think, is there, there's not a motorcycle company associated, I'm t- I think an Indian, I think, uh, but that's a different Springfield, isn't it? Apparently, small <laughs> uh, city, our claim to fame is there's a tourist attraction called Branson, Missouri, Silver Dollar City nearby. Wait and, a second, uh, wait a second. Your, your, your claim to fame for your town is another town that's nearby? Well, um, I... That, well, that's what people recognize a lot. Southwest corner of the state, where the summit city of the Ozarks, well, and where the uh, hey, where the mother road, where we're supposedly the uh, um, 
where the Mother Road Route 66 was really started. Uh, I can't remember how we come up with that connection. So, uh, which I've ridden 66 a lot. And um, so Route 66 and Springfield are synonymous. So oh, that's a big deal for, for motorcycle deal. riders. Yeah, for sure. Route 66 is famous around the world, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of people who uh, sort of dream of riding it. I've never ridden it before. I'd love to. Jim, it's amazing how many people um, ride, which I didn't know it, ride, drive, whatever, want to drive down 66 from Chicago to, I don't know, does it go to, go to LA or maybe it does. I do not remember where it goes, but, but it's, uh, but they, a lot of them pass through here. And now our city is uh, one of the older parts of town that was kind of uh, deteriorating. They're now sprucing that up for uh, 66 riders because a lot of baby boomers are interested and uh, they look at that as a potential uh, demographic to really boost that part of the town. They're going to put it back to the way it was. Well, you're a motorcyclist. Are you a motorcyclist? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I started riding when I was um, about 14 and I rode until I was about 32 Got busy, uh, graduated out of college. I dinked around a while before I started college. And uh, and then in 86, I quit riding. And then I just started in uh, October again when one of my buddies that I hike with asked me if I knew anything about adventure riding. And I said, no, uh, sounded interesting. So uh, when we got through hiking, I went home, Googled it, started listening to Adventure Rider Radio and got intensely interested and uh, I'm a cheap guy, so a KLR seemed perfect for me, and I've got a nice little KLR that needs a little work right now, but other than that, um, so I have I have a background. I rode all through college because it was inexpensive. I've had a, a 350 uh, Bridgestone, a 125 Yamaha, you know, supposed to be off-road, on-road, um, a 250 Yamaha road bike, and then a Silverwing, a 500 Yamaha was my last bike until I got the KLR just in October. Well, that's a pretty common story. Um, a lot of us, you know, go through life uh, starting out with a motorcycle and then find we get busy with families, et cetera, and, and sort of let it drop to the wayside because it, it is sort of a secondary thing. At least it was at that age anyway. And then as you, as you start to get a little older, I think, and the kids uh, start to move out and do their own thing, it tends to send us back looking at the motorcycle again, doesn't it? Yes. And I like the aspect of camping and riding. And uh, as you read different people's uh, narratives and their books and such, I would really enjoy being out on the road by myself. I would also enjoy being with a group. And right now, riding in the United States is, sounds perfect to me. My ultimate right now is to go to Prudhoe Bay or Prudhoe Bay, I guess it is. Well, it didn't work out exactly as you planned. I know be, <laughs> because you bought your KLR and you had to get off. Can you just sort of give us a synopsis of that? Oh, absolutely. I was uh, riding to work. And, uh, you know, all the gear all the time, right? Well, put on my everything, looked at my boots and thought, you know, I'm going to put those boots on. I'm going to ride eight miles. I'm going to get to work. I'm going to have to take the boots off, put on other shoes, yada, yada, yada. And I made excuses for not putting my boots on. So going down the road, um, it's a, an expressway in town, three lanes. The third lane is the exit lane. I was in the middle lane and uh, was getting ready to exit. And uh, I checked my blind spot and uh, what I did that um, what happened that was very unfortunate is when I the instant I averted my eyes, apparently the truck to which I was going to merge behind had the car in front of it stop suddenly 
the truck stopped. And, and when I turned my eyes back around, I lost just enough time that I could not get stopped. So I laid the bike down. And uh, I re- really what I remember is averting my eyes back. And that's the last thing I remember, actually. I'm, when I say I laid the bike down and slid it, that's based on the police report. So I had a severe concussion, uh, broke my foot, and was in the hospital overnight, and then came home. Wow, it's very unfortunate, obviously. But laying the bike down, of course, doesn't slow you down. I think that was the, the old adage that if something went wrong, you couldn't stop the bike for some reason, you laid it down. But in fact, your bike speeds up. As soon as you take the rubber off the road, the speed of the bike increases because there's less friction be- between the, the steel and the asphalt. I assume that when you're saying laid the bike down, that was sort of a result of getting on the brakes, losing your balance and flopping over. Was that it? That's a high side or a low side? Um, it was a low side. And, um, what I'm thinking is because this was my third, uh, get off or come off, whatever you want to call it. The first two, you know, the one was on the 250 Omaha. The second one was on the 500, uh, uh, silver wing, uh, inconsequential to bike and rider. Um, the silver wing was, I was moving pretty fast. The Yamaha, it was in town, but what I think I was avoiding was hitting the rear end of the pickup head on. I think I felt I would be better to slide under the pickup than smack it head on. Mm. I don't know though. That's, that's a pure speculation. That might be one reason if I laid it down intentionally, but what the police said was there was lots of skid marks and then gouges. So I would guess that you're probably right in that I locked it up and then lost control and it just fell over. Mm. So when you're um, in the hospital getting fixed up, how do you feel about riding the bike at that point? Well, I uh, feel a great deal of peer pressure from uh, my uh, son and my wife. Um, My son calls me and he says, Dad, what shape is the bike in? And my answer, suffering from a concussion, was, um, I know, Andy, it's custard, not ice cream. And so, so uh, he was really worried. And, but then about an hour later, I was able to uh, communicate uh, successfully. So you've lost me there. Was that just your, your, your delusional speech because of your concussion? Well, yes, because my son works at a, uh, he manages a restaurant that sells custard and I routinely call it ice cream. And since he was scolding me, I think in my mind, he was scolding me for calling his product <laughs> ice cream instead of custard. So since he was scolding me, I went into protection mode of, yes, Andy, I know it's custard, not ice cream. I really don't know. And uh, the uh, emergency room personnel said I was very entertaining. So that's worth something. <laughs> <laughs> that story is going to stick with you a long time. <laughs> and your son is yeah. probably going to bring it up over and over. Yeah, we have lots of those stories. So he's uh, he enjoys telling stories about me. But as far as you were concerned, did you just think, okay, it's just one of those things that happened. I'm going to learn from it and get back on the bike? That day, yes, that's what I thought. But I, I could not tell my wife that. And so uh, it's just recently that I've been able to convey that. And I even told her that I would quit writing. And, but I, my heart just wasn't in it. And uh, she was gone for two weeks. And completely out of the country. So I had lots of downtime. Uh, One week I was working, one week I wasn't. So I had one entire week sitting at home reading uh, Graham's books, uh, uh, Sam Manicom. I was uh, YouTubing rides to uh, Prudhoe Bay and, you know, looking at the Dalton Highway, thinking how much fun that would be and finding a place to camp and and then wondering who I would meet on the way and uh, 
how I, you know, what, what I might encounter. So that got me all inspired. So then my wife returned home and, and I, uh, broke, uh, the bad news tour, uh, actually today. So, cause I thought, well, if I'm going to do this show, I need to make sure she knows that I'm interested in writing again. So, so as far as your wife was concerned, Becky, she, she thought it's all over, it's done. You've sort of went out and you tried it and it didn't work. And, and now she doesn't have to worry about you riding the bike anymore. Yes. And, uh, there was a wise individual that I communicated with on email. And, uh, that person said, you ride for your enjoyment, not your wife's or your son's or something like that. And I had never really thought about it in that way. And, uh, um, cause I've, my business is serving others. I was reared that you serve others. And so to actually do things for yourself just because you want to is kind of hard for me. This two weeks that I had off without working was um, the first time since I was a teenager that I had absolutely nothing to do for two whole weeks. And it was really fun and uh, relaxing, reading books, you know, but bottom line, I started to realize that, you know, doing stuff for yourself, not too bad. It's, you can't get too selfish, but there's got to be a medium in there someplace. Before we get much further into talking about how this has sort of built up a bit of a, a thing for you to deal with, I'm curious, as far as the accident goes, so or the, the crash, have you decided what you're going to do? Are you just going to, uh, if it turns out that you end up just getting back on the bike, are you going to ride again? Will you just get on the bike or will you seek out um, some sort of help for uh, for riding or take a lesson or anything like that? Has there been thought process put into that? You know, I... Uh because what I'm saying, at, David, is I'm not saying you're a bad rider at all, but right. I, I just think in, in these instances where we have these problems, where we, we have something go wrong, it's, it, can be, uh, it can be helpful to deconstruct what happened and then say, okay, well, you know, talk to a professional about it. How could I have avoided this? How could I make sure it doesn't happen again? I'm just wondering, have you, have you thought about that at all? I've thought about it with off-road riding, but I never had thought about it with highway and as you're saying that, I'm thinking about an acquaintance that I made um, in a nearby town called Waynesville, which is where Fort Leonard Wood is. It's a large military base. And they have professional people that come in and provide training. And the gentleman with whom I've become acquainted that wants to wants me to go on some rides with him, he suggested that I take that training. And that's really a good idea. I know I can find out about it and springtime will be a key time for them to offer that, I'm sure. So what's the dilemma at this point as far as what you're going to do? Are you going to ride and and what is the problem with it? Um, well, the biggest dilemma is Beck's concerns. My thoughts are that I most definitely need to wear all the gear all the time. I need to, uh, when I'm riding in town traffic, provide more following distance, um, be more cautious get in the lane I need to get in. I don't have to ride on the expressway. I was just doing it because I wanted that experience. I usually take a, uh, a a different road to work. I need to ride on the expressways as well, but uh, taking extra training is an extraordinarily good idea. So Becky, your wife, she doesn't want you to ride anymore. Not at all, most likely, but then she also understands that there's a lot of things that I do that she's not 
crazy about. You know, I, I used to work too much. I don't do that quite as much, but I'm pretty spontaneous. And she often says that uh, living with Dave Priggle is a new day every day. <laughs> so at this point, when those crutches go away and you're able to get back on that bike again, are you going to do it? Oh, sure. You told her this today. What did she say? Um, well, she said, well, you know, your wife and your son want you to stay alive. And I said, I understand that. I also understand that I really enjoy riding and I'm going to enjoy putting the bike back together. It's fortunate that KLR 650 parts are very widely available on eBay and every place else. So I can, I can purchase everything at used prices and it's in good shape. Most of my damage was plastics, um, had the wiring harness damage. So my plan is to spend the time getting the bike working well, which gives me time to think about a lot of things. And uh, if she is able to, con- if she if she convinces me, well, then I'll have something to sell. And because without putting it back together, it was worthless. If I put it back together, I can at least recoup most of my expense. So, uh, but I really think I will. It'll be a lot of talking and a, a lot of uh, um, deciding. My good friend got me interested in it. He's not bought a bike yet, but he still wants to ride to Alaska. And so if he gets a bike, then she would feel better if I was riding with Mac. So one of her concerns is that you're riding alone? No, nope. She's just concerned that I'm riding at all. Mm. And, and, you know, she... Well, she's just concerned. We've um, arranged in advance to talk to your wife, Becky, which is a is a really great thing that she's going to do. She's going to give her perspective because um, I think it takes a lot. Yes. When I asked her, if she, I said, I've got a really big favor. I told her that one of my bucket list deal, uh, wishes was to be on Adventure Rider Radio. And I thought I would do something extraordinary like I didn't know what that might be, but it would be something extraordinary. And I would I would keep networking with you and Elizabeth and somehow um, become a guest on the show. And I didn't think it would be through an accident. And so I asked her as a favor to uh, be willing to be interviewed. And she said, well, I don't have anything good to say. And I said, well, that's exactly what we want. We want your opinion. That's what I want. I assume that's what you and Elizabeth want as well. Okay, well, let's talk with Becky. Okay, I'll go get her. My name is Becky Priggle, and I live in Battlefield, Missouri, which is just outside of Springfield, Missouri, and I'm an RN. Becky, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much, first of all, for coming on and talking about this, because I know it is um, stressful, to say the least. It's something that's unresolved and, and difficult to deal with, so thank you very much. Uh-huh. Now, we've talked with David about what happened, and um, he, you know he said about his desire to, to go on riding. You'd rather he doesn't ride. I'm, I'm just sort Correct. of curious, and, and, and maybe it seems like a, a silly question, but uh, what's the fear of it? Just that he would get hurt um, worse than he did this time or get killed. 
when he first got the bike, when he first bought the, the KLR last year and decided that he was going to get into riding, were you as apprehensive then as you are now? Or is it this get off, this crash that's really brought this all up? Oh, no, I was I was very much against it when he bought it. So um, basically, he bought it without my blessing. Mm. And I guess when when he had the crash, you figured that that would be it. That would be the end of it and game over. Sort I was of, hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I was hopeful of that. So the idea is, I mean, the concern, obviously, and I think this goes with everyone because it goes with my wife as well and, and my family. Everyone um, who doesn't ride a motorcycle tends to be very concerned about the safety aspect and there's no getting around it. It is certainly a higher risk mode of transportation than any, than anything else. Is it is is it something in your background that also has you fearful of motorcycles? Yes, I've taken care of many patients uh, that have had you know, terrible motorcycle accidents. And then I've never worked in the ER, but I know that uh, the, uh, you know, incidents of people being in a motorcycle accident and living is not very good. But, Mm. you know, it's just your head against the pavement uh, when you crash. So, and that doesn't fare so good most of the time. But to be fair, the ones that you see are the ones that are actually seriously hurt, not the ones sort of that have had to get off or crash and, and got up and walked away. Correct. That's mm. right. Do you feel the same way about sort of any sort of dangerous activity? Um, some, but um, just, you know, more with the motorcycle, just because it's, um, we've been in a car crash also, And so you just have a lot more protection, you know, with a car when you're in an accident. Of course, I know accidents happen all the time, but you just have more of a um, protection when you have a car rather than, you know, the motorcycle. So not so much David's skill level, but more the the vehicles around him. Correct. Yep. And the fact is that um, I think people, I mean, heard of a lot of other people that have had motorcycle accidents and they said that it wasn't really their fault. It's just that people can't see them. Mm. Yeah, that, that is um, that's one theory I've heard is that people are not programmed uh, to look for motorcycles. They, they really tend to look for vehicles, which is right. why you don't notice telephone poles and mailboxes as you're driving along because you're, you're programmed to look for vehicles. Because quite often when there is a, a crash, motorcyclists will say, I looked right at them, they looked at me and they still turned in front of me. Uh-huh. It's something right. you, you have to ride defensively. But we just finished interviewing a, a woman named Vonnie Glaves and Vonnie has done a million miles on her motorcycles, I say motorcycles, uh-huh. more than one, never a crash. Wow. So, I mean, there are, you know, it's, it's not like every motorcycle goes out and crashes, but, and I'm not trying to change your mind here. I would never try and right. do that of how you feel about it and nor that I even uh, think that I could, but I'm sort of curious now, if David goes and gets training and feels that he's uh, better equipped to ride the motorcycle, does that change the way you feel about the motorcycle? Not really. Uh, I still uh, just don't feel like it's a safe thing. I think everybody who rides a bike understands it's more dangerous. I know there's right. a, there's a specialist with motorcycles that says um, uh, he says that according to statistics, you're you're 27 times more likely to die in a motorcycle accident than you are a car accident. 
Uh-huh. So it's certainly, um, there's certainly a higher risk there, but I guess the thing is with, with life, there seems to be a risk with everything, whether you're snowboarding, you're skiing, you're cycling. I mean, it seems like there's, there's risks all over the place. And I, and I guess as a motorcyclist, like from my point of view, for me riding, and I would never say this is anyone else's, but I think there's a, there's, um, sort of an acceptable risk you, you, you see for doing the things that you love to do. Sure. And I think yeah. with that for myself, what I do is I, I go out of my way to be extremely safe. I mean, the, uh-huh. and that's what Vonnie Glaves as well said. I asked her, I said, what's your secret to success? What, like with no accidents in, in all those miles. And, and she says, number one, the space. You've always got to keep a cushion around you. And said, number two, she said, is always be aware. You need to be a hundred percent aware. Right. So, I mean, um, like I say, I'm, I'm not trying to convince you, but um, it, it's an interesting sort of situation that you guys are in. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out for you. Right. <laughs> I hope you're both satisfied with the result. Well, thank you. Appreciate thank, it. Thanks very much, Becky. You're welcome. And that was Dave and Becky Priggle. And you have to give Becky credit for coming out of the show and talking about an issue that's that's so tender for her and David at this point. And as a side note, David has emailed since we talked and said that he's already signed up for riding lessons when he gets back on the bike. We're taking a short break so I can tell you about two things. When we come back, Dave is here to tell us the rest of the story. What happened with his riding and life. Stay with us. If you've ever had cold feet, you know how frustrating that can be for riding a motorcycle. There is a cure. You only need to get it once. It requires no charging. There's no cords to connect. It's just what I always like to think of as as good old-fashioned quality. The kind of quality that you can count on. So you forget about it. You just put it on and you forget about it because you know that it will be there for you. And what I'm talking about here is Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are made specifically for motorcycle riding. They're made of a blend of merino wool and possum fur weaved into a sock that is meant specifically for riding motorcycles. I like the tall ones. They go all the way up to the top of my riding boots. They prevent chafing. They're super comfortable and they keep my feet warm. And really importantly, they don't stink after hard use. And the reason they don't stink is because The fibers that they use to make the Pearly's Possum Socks, the Possum Fur and Merino Wool, they have natural antibacterial qualities in them. So they just don't stink. I mean, you wear them day after day, if you do, and you'll be amazed. Not only that, they keep your feet warm and they keep your feet comfortable. Incredible socks. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. Every rider wants to be a better rider. I mean, we all want to improve our skills. And the only way to do that is to learn the steps and then get out there and spend time riding, practicing what you've learned. It's kind of like exercise. You can't just pay somebody to do it for you. It doesn't work that way. There is no shortcut to success. But there are some things you can do. And there's one thing in particular, and that's having a key piece of equipment on your bike. You can ride just about any bike, but you need to be able to speak to the bike and have it listen. And what I'm talking about is using your feet on your foot pegs to speak and having the bike respond. And only a quality set of foot pegs that are designed just for that purpose will get you the most out of your connection. 
get what the pros ride on, and that's IMS Products foot pegs. IMS has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that are designed for riders by riders, tested and refined by riders and racers. They make extra wide ADV1 and ADV2 pegs and more, including their core series, all made of cast certified stainless steel, all heat treated, all made in the USA, and all warranted for life. IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Um, my name is David Priggle. I'm from Blue Eye, Missouri, and I'm a veterinarian who teaches at a small college now. Dave, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, really glad to be here. Thank you. Well, it's been a while since we talked. Now, the last time we talked, I thought you were retired or close to retirement. I think maybe you retired afterwards and we, we, we've spoken since then and you were retired, but now it sounds like you're back to work again. Yes, um, I attempted retirement and was uh, not a good retiree, uh, a former employee who works uh, at a veterinary technology program in a small state college. She started recruiting me in 2018, seven, somewhere around there, and uh, to teach, and now I'm in my fifth year. Wow. Oh, that's great. So you, you found, it's obviously your wife got sick of having you at home. She sent you off to get a job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my wife got sick of me entirely. So, <laughs> so that's another change since, uh, since the, uh, are you serious? Um, no, that was, that was last talk. Oh, that's very serious. 20, uh, 2021 was uh, our, our divorce was final. So, oh, wow. so uh, I'm, it, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, yeah. Uh, but, uh, as you well know, from the numerous people you have the opportunity to interview, lots of things happen and that's life. Wow. Life is so, like that. Yeah keep on moving. And uh, so, um, yeah, and the teaching job is my retirement. I have, a, I have, I have a lot of time off. And so the day after graduation, uh, this year I'm headed for the, uh, Arizona BDR. So, Ooh, so obviously now you've just given it away. You're still riding a motorcycle. Well, let's just go back up because last time we talked, last time we had you on the show, we had your wife on, your ex-wife now, and you talked about what it was like with having that accident and then having that crash and, and getting back on the bike and how your family didn't want you to get back on the bike. Talk to your wife. I, and I know I wasn't attempting to, to, to convince her of anything. And I, and I, I know that didn't change your mind on it. What happened from, from there on? Did you get right back on the bike? Was there uh, some, some friction there with you and your family? It was your son as well, from what I remember. Well, my son, he, he, he's a rarely serious and he just always tells me I'm going to kill myself on that thing. And that's about the summation of his concern. He, he knows that it could, but he doesn't want it to happen, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so after we spoke, you suggested that, uh, well, you asked me, said, Dave, have you thought about training? And, uh, and I had just finished a neurological uh, continuing education course. And I thought, well, no, that's ridiculous. The second we finished that conversation, I signed up for Motorcycle Safety Foundation at a local community college in Springfield, Missouri. I took that, and then I was listening to Adventure Rider Radio, and J.J. Uh, Lewis was talking, and he was talking about his training courses. I contacted J.J., and he said, uh, he said, well, Dave, you can come out here, but 
there's somebody really close to you that's much more convenient. He said, call Bill Dragoo at uh, Dart, which, of course, you're very familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so I called Bill and I went out uh, after getting uh, Betty Lou put back together and took his course and then immediately went to Bill recommend that I was headed to the Colorado BDR. I left Bill's training and went to um, Mills Canyon in uh, New Mexico, a really off the uh, off the road place that Bill recommended. And, and, and then I did, Oh, uh, probably 150 miles of the Colorado BDR. And then, ha- then it was time to go home. And so that was my first. And then I've had two other, uh, dart training since then. And I've been, I, I did the New Mexico BDR last year. Um, I've ridden to Vancouver, then across part of Canada, uh, out to the East coast several times down to Florida, tail of the dragon. Um, had a great time riding and and am constantly constantly practicing if i'm on the bike i'm going through what i learned and uh trying to make my ride as safe as possible try to do all the lighting i can do and and those types of things wow i'm impressed dave that's really really good and bill dragoo i mean wow you 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 really uh you hit a home run there so i mean what did you learn at at bill's school Were were you learning basics or did you get into the advanced stuff um, I've done all of his classes, but of course the first one was he, that would have been in 2017 and, um, he, his, his classes are much smaller than, which was really nice. A lot of personal attention. And I was fortunately became good friends with Bill and he's helped me with everything from bike prep to I'll be out on the trail and if I can get reception, I'll text him and he'll give me an idea and so I've been very fortunate there. And I think Bill does that for a lot of his students. Um, I'm not that special. Um, but uh, so, so well, I've Bill, had, I've he, had he seems like he's willing to help everyone. Like he, he, he loves oh. what we do. He loves riding adventure motorcycles. And he seems like yeah. he goes out of his way to help anyone who's interested. Well, you pull your bike into his driveway. The first thing he does is look over it. And if he thinks, see something that he thinks needs to be done, he'll roll it in his shop, put it up on the lift and, <laughs> And, and get her done. Yeah, I know he's told me stories about having people he's not even met come and stay at his house or drop by his house and things like that. Yeah, so, I mean, exactly. And so, but what I really learned was that um, you're constantly practicing, you're constantly learning, and that, um, you know, the, uh, then the ins and outs, you know, slow, um, steady, momentum, uh, probably the biggest thing I've learned that I just now have mastered is picking my line when I'm, when I'm on a rough trail mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, picking my line, keeping my momentum and not turning into a chicken. Um, but using your head, not being a daredevil, but, uh, being, uh, wise and aggressive, wisely aggressive is what I would describe it. Cause some of those, you know, if it's really rough, you got to pick your line and then you got to go and you got to be looking way down the trail. If you look down, then you're probably done. So we just heard the original episode where you talked about your crash. You were recovering at that point and ready to get back onto your bike. When you look back on that original crash, compare that to what you are now. What's the comparison there? What do you see? Well, if I would have had, it's hard to say. Well, what's interesting, once you've had a very rigorous short course in riding a motorcycle where you almost got, where you got beat up, 
um, when I took the motorcycle safety foundation course, I was tuned in to everything they were saying. After the course, I told myself, well, if I would have known all of this, I wouldn't have crashed. But I think crashing tuned me in to what I ne- needed to know. And when they taught me how to brake, when they taught me how to swerve and avoid, I mean, it clicked instantly. If I would have known what I learned, I would have slowed and swerved around the pickup truck because there was about four or five feet between the pickup truck and the guardrail. And I had a good angle. I could have slipped right, you know, and I would have, it would have been frightening, but I would have zoomed past that pickup and, and had, you know, five, four or five feet of shoulder uh, to slow down on. And, uh, um, and I've had instances since then where I had to, had to break quickly and I had to swerve. And I was, you know, I was successful. Um, you know, it was an intersection or something where somebody um, stopped too quickly. Now I'm, I have a very big following distance, typically, if I'm in any kind of traffic. So, yeah, that was one of the things I remember you saying is that you would increase your, your following distance. You, you possibly right. felt you were too close. Yep. Yep. Well, yes. And, and of course, you know, I checked my blind spot and then I checked my blind spot and then I, aggressively moved over into the next lane, not knowing that the pickup that, that I had seen nanoseconds before had come to a complete stop. And so, uh, you know, but so in other words, and I also, I was, I was changing lanes in kind of a, a hurry. What I would do nowadays in that same situation, it was kind of a tight spot. I would just go to the next exit. I wouldn't worry about that exit. I'd say, man, this is nuts. I just need to go to the next exit, you know, judgment and, uh, Bill uh, Dragoo talks about, you know, that judgment's one of the big things he talks about, whether you're, you know, riding a rough trail or going down the highway, um, use good judgment. And so I, I really enjoy thinking about, you know, being a better judge this morning when I was riding to work, it was, a, <laughs> when I left the house, it was 54, but when I got in the low spots, it was 41. And I did my judgment today was to dress too lightly. And, but it's hour and a half ride. And so I had a great time. And, but even there, you know, I'm going around curves, I'm going over hills. I'm thinking I can't go too fast because I could pop over that hill and there'd be a farmer with his tractor. Mm-hmm. And I got to be ready for that. And uh, it's because sometimes I got 111 curves from my house to school. And, and man, I want to f- zoom around those sometimes. Wait, wait, you, you and, actually know, is it serious? You got to have a 111 curves? Well, I counted them. Yeah. <laughs> so an hour and a half ride and 111 curves. Well, you you got a pretty good setup right now. It is. It's great. And I've got, uh, I've got my, uh, my Tenere 700, which is a, just a blast to ride. And then uh, I, I'm getting hooked and I bought an old uh, Yamaha cruiser and it's a lot of fun. It's real noisy, you know, and, and, and looks badass. And then I, uh, um, then for most of my commuting, I use a, a Honda NC uh, 700 DCT because it gets great mileage. I'll get 60 miles to the gallon on that thing. So, mm, wow. yeah. And, and it's, 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 it's mindless. You just get on the throttle and it does all the shifting. It's got anti-lock brakes like the Tenere. And uh, so, you know, it's a, and, but right now I've been riding the Tenere cause I just really enjoy that bike the most. So what you've been saying is you're, you're looking at things totally different. You're thinking all the time. Now you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, chopping a hill and possibly, you know, there could be a, a tractor yeah. who knows what's there. As a matter of fact, I'll right. give you an example. Right. The other day I was riding a back road, very narrow, very windy. It's, it's more of a, it's a two track, but it's, but it's a road. It's, you know, it's, it's a pretty rough condition road. 
end on a very tight corner as I'm going one way. What comes down, like taking up the entire road, a loaded dump truck that is moving so fast he can't make the corner. He's bouncing and his wheels are turned to a lock and it's skidding. And boy, I had to get on the brakes fast. Now that was a, a wake up call. And that's one of those times yeah. I think I am glad I don't get excited and get riding too fast on these roads because oh, yeah. I hadn't seen anyone yeah. else at all. And and yeah. that's what you're doing, isn't it? You're, you're watching oh, for yeah. that. Yeah. And, and getting some muscle memory for things like that and not panicking. Don't look at the dang truck. You got to look where you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And because if you look at the truck, you're going to park it right in the front of that truck yeah. potentially. And I know I was on the million dollar highway following my friend uh, the, a couple summers ago and I kind of get lackadaisical and he got ahead of me and thought, oh, I better catch, catch my buddy. And I was, you know, I was really concentrating, but I broke concentration for just a moment and I hit a corner, you know, by my standards too hot. It was, you know, the bike would navigate the corner just fine at that speed. And, but, you know, I knew I was too hot and I knew I couldn't, uh, you know, ru- slow it, slow down, scrub off any speed to speak of. And so I just looked where I was going and, and told Betty Lou what to do. And I mean, she just zinged around that corner, like nobody's business. <laughs> and, you know, because I, you know, you, you got to look where you're going and, and I stayed calm. I mean, the adrenaline, whew, even when I tell the story now, the adrenaline finally stops pumping, but you know, on that, particular road, if you, if you were to go down, you're off and it's hundreds of feet down, you're, you're, you're gone. So. If you had had that training, we probably never would have talked. Right. Um, yeah, if I had not, and if I hadn't had the training, I think, and if I hadn't, you know, if I wouldn't rehearse every time I ride, I wouldn't have been ready for that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, and and when I did it, I kind of see why people ride corners way too fast. It's very thrilling, but man, it just takes all the fun out of it for me. I I'm, I'm old enough that I've been thrilled plenty. I'm happy with the with the nice uh, fun life. So we we talked about having your wife on the show, and if you don't want to answer this, of course, just you know let me know. But I'm curious: was the divorce something to do with the bike? Um. The bike started something that I had never done in my life. Um, I tell people that uh, my first job lasted 60 years, 61 years. And my first job was to try to please everybody. And uh, I wanted a motorcycle and my wife and I discussed it. And there was not a lot of discussion that transpired because we were polar opposites. And so I just decided I'm buying a motorcycle. And, um, and of course then being a pleaser when I crashed three or four months after buying the bike, I thought, okay, that, you know, lesson learned, I'm done. And then I just couldn't, couldn't let it go. And I realized that, you know, I'm a human being and I'm not unreasonable. I'm not irrational. Um, there's a few things that I like to do. And so I like riding a motorcycle and, and, uh, and so I started expressing myself more. Um, and I became a person that, that my wife really didn't, um, recognize anymore. And, and it seemed like we couldn't bridge that gap and it created a lot of distrust on her part because I was changing so much. And, uh, and also with some, you know, some, some of our religious beliefs, I became more liberal 
And, and that was very difficult for her too. So the motorcycle purchase prompted me starting to, wait a minute, I'm going to quit this job of pleasing everybody for 61 years. And I'm not, I don't want to be selfish, but I want to actually consider myself in, uh, when making a decision, instead of always trying to think, now, what does so-and-so think? What does this person think? What does this person think? I think, well, is this something I want to do? And do I like doing this? And um, is it, can I do it? And is it, is it a, and, and so um, I do it, uh, you know, it, and, and so when I started doing that, which was going on rides and, and going places and she didn't say no, but I knew that she would prefer I not. And, um, but, but I changed enough that, um, it really changed her opinion of me. So, because she thought I was, um, I had changed too much. What made you want to be a pleaser? Um, that's a, um, I was, I was a very compliant child. I mean, I don't know. I'll give you my opinion. I was a very compliant child. And I thought the world of my parents and did, did their entire life. I really respected and honored my parents. And I so much wanted to please them that, that um, I would um, do my best to be absolutely compliant and, and not be a, 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 you know, I was one of those kids that always in school did everything just right. And, um, but sometimes, I wanted to do something, you know, paint outside the lines, and I was very reluctant to do that. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think it be- came about because I so much wanted to please my parents. And uh, and then the then the first I was married twenty eight years the first time, and and uh, the third day of our honeymoon, that individual made it clear she loved me. She liked uh, she uh, uh, she loved me, but really didn't like me. And so I spent 28 years trying to get her to like me. That was on your honeymoon? Yeah, the third day of our honeymoon. Yeah. And I I worked at it for 28 years, Jim. So. Wow. That was, and and (laughs) so this isn't the, this isn't the wife you just divorced and that was your first wife. Yeah. Then the, the, the second wife, I, I overlooked quite a few red flags early on and, um, and then spent 17 years. Uh, I spent um, 12 years trying to trying to please her and then five years kind of relaxing and saying, you know what, I this is what I believe about our faith. And this is uh, I really like riding motorcycles and, um, you know, uh, just really expressing myself very openly and honestly, trying to be transparent, trying to be vulnerable. And uh, it was very uncomfortable for her. And. Uh, so then that created, so 12 years started doing my own thing. And then five years later, seven, after 17 years of marriage, it was, it was over. So what's life feel like for you now? Life feels extraordinarily real. Um, I have more, um, guy friends than I've ever had. And, um, I've got one that I ride with a lot, meaning we get together and ride seven to this last year, we probably rode 
12 or 15 days together and we we communicate and then i go down to the local cigar bar here in my local town cigar lounge and i've got a cadre of friends there that i that i that i talk with and and then i do you know i'm, I'm dating a lady off and on oh, and i say off and on we're dating each other and uh and in a committed no intention of marriage relationship um and but i um and i love teaching a lot of people think i should retire i'm 67 and i want to teach till i'm 72 and uh so i this is what i want to do so this is what i'm doing and um and but at the same time i really try to be connected and helping people i've got two families one in senegal and one in gambia africa uh senegal i go i went and visited patrick this summer and uh but you know i i spend um resources and time communicating and and uh and and assisting them with their life in some ways um so i'm i'm doing what i want to do and trying to be honest with people and transparent and vulnerable and i've got four men that i get together with uh every friday morning from uh 10 to 11 30 on a on a, on a zoom like call and, and uh we really support each other honest with each other a lot of us are had some of the same issues where we were always trying to please somebody and um you know and, and then so happens my therapist is one of these uh five guys so i have my therapist at the I get to talk to him every Friday that I can get online. So mm, nice. And well, and then I have a former brother-in-law that I'm very close with and he was a veterinarian. He is a veterinarian, just like me, he's retired. And, uh, you know, we have really genuine, honest conversations and, um, it's, it's, it's freedom for me. It's, it's like when you put your helmet on and you're in your world and that's what I feel like every day now. I feel like every day I'm I'm riding through life and smelling everything, um, seeing everything, thinking about everything. You know, there's you know, motorcycling really opened up my life to a whole bunch of stuff. And um, can't, I can't really describe. It's an emotional high to ride. and And I meet people of all all kinds of people that are just totally kind accepting non-judgmental um everybody's got the same goal kind of you know ride that bike i guess so um it's a the motorcycles was a huge change in my life you know taking that step because if i would have if i would not got back on it i think i would have stayed in the old pleasing mode and and kept my life really small and and would have missed out on teaching and and getting involved with people in africa and and uh and making lots of new friends and um and then really i i do a lot of introspection i read a lot try to read books that that help me think um about who i am and what i can be what i need to do and trying to make myself a better person so Several times there, you said about being honest or having honest conversations. And, and I guess not that you were living a lie before, but I guess if you're a pleaser, you're really always trying to tell people what they want to hear. Oh, exactly. It's exhausting. Yeah. And, and you're, and you're yeah. really never getting to, well, to be yourself, which is what it sounds like you're doing now. Right. 
you don't get to be yourself. And um, I've always had, I mean, people have always liked me. I've always been a likable guy, let's say. But now, um, you know, ha- having friends that you can have um, <clears throat> real honest conversations about all kinds of things. Because what what I really realized is, you know, I, I haven't done anything wrong, so to speak. And that I'm, I'm in the process of reading a book. That's the first chapter. You haven't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And because so often we we beat ourselves up with uh, mistakes we've made or or choices. You know, when I'm on the trail and I go down, I don't I don't think about, well, the, it was my tires. It was this. It was that. You know, I always know 99% of the time it's the operator. Mm-hmm. I start looking and, and thinking about, okay, what can I do next time to avoid this? And 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 for me, that's very uplifting. It's very positive. I ne- I just I don't kick myself for well if you should have went there, and, and I know I should have. But the point is, well, good. That's knowledge. And but you don't belittle yourself or or make yourself um, any less of a writer because you made the wrong choice three times in a row. It, the, then that fourth time when you make the right choice, it's like riding in sand. Once you start to get the hang of it. Man, it really snowballs, and and um, and I when I say riding in sand, I'm talking you know New Mexico white sands, mm-hmm. you know sand anywhere from five or six, you know then you hit spots where it's eight ten inches deep and it's real soft sand, so it you know doesn't push you around much. You don't have a lot of, but you know I rode I don't know how many miles and bobbled twice and never went down, and uh, I mean when I got through with that, I was excited so. <laughs> All from a motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable, um, because it, it it allowed me to think. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with riding a motorcycle. It is you know, you're 23 less likely to get let 23 more times likely to get hurt in an accident, and and I had an accident, and but you know what? I had seven broken bones that all healed on their own. I had a concussion and. Didn't know what was going on from 8.30 to 11.30. And, but the good thing was I had all my gear on. If I would have wore my boots, I might not have broke as many bones. I didn't lose any skin. I had a helmet on or I'd have been dead. And, um, and it happened on December 30th. My deductible was met. I was out before midnight on the 31st. It didn't cost me a dime. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't beat that. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> 24 hours in the hospital and not a dime out of my pocket. So, I mean, that was that was, that was first class right there. So, wow. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm just I'm so impressed with what you've done. I really am. Well, it, it, life is great, Jim, and we we all must live it. That was Dave Priggle from his home in Blue Eye, Missouri. We've got some photos and a link to that original episode if you want to hear the whole thing with Dave in the show notes for this episode on our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com.
Next, Clinton Smout, the head instructor of Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Of course, regular listeners will recognize him from many of our rider skills segments. Clinton has tips on getting back on the bike after a crash, whether it be on the road or off-road. Like if you've ran into problems with mud or rocks or hill climbs and it's got you freaked out, these tips should help with that. So, hi, Jim. We're talking about crashing. Uh, What we deal with periodically is someone coming to the off-road school for some refresher training because they've had a pretty substantial crash where there was an injury sustained. And what we found over the years is that long after bones or tissue damage has healed, there's some psychological damage where people are freaked out about riding their bike again. They really want to, but they can't get over this mental hurdle of focusing on what happened in the past. And it could be a year or two before. And it's keeping them from enjoying the sport again. So we've tried to work as best we can with folks that have crashed and what worked for them. And we've come up with some training ideas and tips that have worked. Apparently, they've really helped people. It's, that's smart on somebody's part to to recognize that they're having an issue with that and then go seek out training rather than just try and either deal with it on their own or avoid something. Yes, uh, we're very grateful for it. And it's a challenge as an instructor because, you know, the basic instruction we do is how to work a clutch, brake, stand up. We're an off-road school. But this is far more challenging because you can read the tension on people's face and in their body language that they're not enjoying this and they're freaking out when you've asked them to go back into the gravel if it was gravel where they crashed. What's your dog have a problem with what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) It's around lunchtime. So that means Joe, the postman, and if the dog is outside, he always gets a treat. So if Joe's going by, he's pretty fired up that he's not outside. <laughs> I'm sure that's it. But Joe's about two houses away now, so that should be the last we hear of it. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay, so um, let me ask you, though, why, and I don't want to get you in trouble here, you know, as far yeah. as, but why do we crash? Well, um, off-road Most of us, I believe, have more experience with traction on-road, which is generally far better. So off-road, sand, gravel, um, it creates traction challenges that we don't have a lot of experience with. And so a seasoned adventure bike rider, they'll see the color of the soil on the trail or road changes. And if it's black and shiny and you're on the Dempster, you know that that's a low area where water's collected and it's going to be grease. So experience will tell you, drop a couple gears, go over to the side of the road where there's probably better traction with tufts of grass, and that's how you handle it. But that's only after you've crashed a few times and you've learned don't go into the same tire tracks at the same speed you were doing before the mud. So I think adventure bike riders crash more 
than 100% pavement riders. It's because of the traction challenges. Mm. But what we tell our customers right in the beginning, and we're generally in first gear for quite a while at the start of a two-day adventure bike course, we tell them, don't sweat the crash. Don't worry about it. You've got crash guards. If you didn't bring it, we lent you really good armor riding gear. And we tell you in advance, you're probably going to tip over, but it'll be very slow speeds. The only thing hurt might be your ego. And I learned something from Bill Dragoon. He, I think it was his son was doing some training. And when he rode up on a big GS1250 to meet the group of people standing there, when you take rider training, I don't care who you are, it's a little intimidating. You're looking at the other bikes that might be better than yours. Oh my God, look at all the gear on that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's intimidating. So you're a little nervous. So what Bill's son did, I thought it was brilliant. I'm going to start doing it to kind of break the ice of this crashing thing we're talking about. He rides up and throws his bike on the ground. He crashes right in front of everybody. <laughs> and I'm proud of him for doing that because most instructors, and I have lots of them, they hate crashing in front of instructors because it makes them look like idiots. Oh, yeah. But I think it makes you look human. If I don't crash, I certainly tell my customers of the crashes I have. And I think it humanizes you and humbles you a little bit. And it makes it easier for the customer to kind of endure a tip over. Well, yeah, it lets you realize that it's not just you. Yeah. But let's jump back to the street now and talk yes. about those clients that you have that come in. They've, they've had something happen on the street. What do you do? What's the first thing you do with someone when they come in? Well, as much as I hate talking about what happened, we need the mechanics. We need a little bit of information on what happened. Well, I was going into a corner and I probably was going too fast and I hit the brakes and all of a sudden my front wheel was gone and I slid across the road into the guardrail. The bike was written off and I was pretty hurt. Well, that's a pretty simple and popular way to fall off. Single motor vehicle crash with a motorcycle often has something to do with both speed, cornering, and inappropriate brake use. So that's something that is probably better trained out of at a track day where the racetrack I used to teach at, we would use chalk on the paved corners to illustrate the apex of the turn, where your braking pylons will be. And then as people get used to apexing a corner, if that's what the decision was for that particular geometry of the corner, they get used to the speed that they should approach, when to get off the brakes, when if maybe trail braking is appropriate, and that's the best place for that on-road accident uh, reconstruction and improvement of their skill. Get their confidence up. Because if it's a proper course, there's no guardrails. Some of the car racing tracks do have guardrails, but the track I raced or helped at at Shannonville, 
um, the training section of the course that we didn't use guardrails. So mm -hmm. that's um, a bit of a release of anxiety for the participant because there's no other traffic coming towards them. The track has been vacuumed with a tractor, all the debris off. The bikes we used had really good new soft rubber and they were in full armor, like full leathers. So that I think is part of the answer. If you crashed and got injured, maybe you didn't have all the gear on that you wanted to. And that's a joke I say to some people when they say, you know, aren't you hot with all that gear on? I said, yeah, but, you know, I only dress this way on the, on the days that I'm planning on crashing. <laughs> and they kind of think yeah, I'm an idiot. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's a good way to reduce anxiety is a controlled environment like a track day. If your accident happened on corners when you were by yourself. It's interesting what you pulled from, from your example. You know, you're, like you're saying that obviously they came into the corner too fast. They break too hard, too much on the front. You work backwards from that and think, how do we, you know, teach, well, in this case, to become a better rider so they don't run into that example again. Now, what if it wasn't their fault? What what if they're, you know, riding along and they get hit and that's their hesitation, that's their hang up, their fear? Yeah, that is actually far more likely as far as causation of street bike accidents or incidents might be the better term. It's often involving another vehicle that either didn't see the rider or misjudged the approach speed. We've talked about that on a previous segment. So we go over some kind of chess moves for riding in traffic. Observation skills are sadly lacking in a lot of street motorcyclists, in my opinion. They are a reactive rider, not a planning thinking ahead rider. So if you have to use hard braking, swerving, emergency maneuvers all the time or once a week, you are the problem. It's not other traffic. You're riding way too aggressively. If you're passing all the cars all the time, you're going to get cut off by people changing lanes and people turning left in front of you. It's just a given. It's going to mm -hmm. happen. So one thing we can talk about is how are you riding in traffic? If it's a 30 miles an hour zone, what are you riding, honestly? And at least ask them to slow down or adjust their riding slower on the approach to all the intersections. Because that's likely where the accident happened. There's a psychological part of the problem that people run into. And it certainly happened. I, 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 I would imagine it's fairly prevalent for someone who's been hit by another vehicle, especially if you didn't see it coming, that sort of thing. How do you work on the psychological aspect? Somebody who's maybe just fearful of riding at that point. Yeah, I did a lot of research into why people are paranoid in any activity that some people do normal life. Like there's people freaked out about flying. Uh, there's phobias about spiders, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So um, if we attack the paranoia rather of, man, I got hit in traffic, I'm freaked out about traffic. We tell them, don't go into traffic. Don't ride at times. If you live in 
downtown Toronto or downtown Los Angeles, get up really early or go out when there isn't crazy traffic. And um, that will reduce stress. So you've got to get your confidence and the enjoyment of riding back. And that cannot happen if the brain is paranoid and freaked out about every car and truck that's approaching them. Mm. Is that one going to hit me? Is that one going to hit me? How do you enjoy the ride? So I think part of the answer for a street rider is quiet back roads uh, with very less, with very little traffic, less speed, and you can kind of get back into riding again. Right. That makes sense. So that builds your confidence, makes you more comfortable. And I love the fact you just said enjoyment. That's so true. I forgot about that. It brings back the joy of the ride. And then you slowly integrate yourself into more and more denser traffic or whatever it is you're fearful of and work your way into it. So you've started slow. Yes. Uh, We had great success with a contributor of your show. Uh, Liz Jansen's a great friend of mine. And she had a horrific crash that put her off a bike for a year and a half a pretty bad shoulder injury and it was in the gravel on the corner. Mm-hmm. Now, now just before you go any further, now we, we had around to tell the, her whole story about that yeah. actually. So I'll put a link in the show notes for, to that story. So people can listen to it and sort of see what she went through and what she experienced. And Liz and I collaborated cause she's a motorcycle instructor and we came up with this gravel phobia curriculum. A uh, part of it was Liz was freaked out about getting back on the gravel on a big bike. Her accident happened on a Yamaha Tenere 1200. That's a big bike. Mm -hmm. And so we started on a 125cc dirt bike in a big gravel parking lot. Um, We also felt that one-on-one instruction would be the best. So if someone's going to go down this road and try to get some constructive help from an instructor, I would recommend very, very small groups if the best would be one-on-one. And the reason being is whoever you are, other riders can be intimidating and distracting. So if the voice in your helmet is saying to you, oh my God, they're going to be wanting to go so much faster. Now I'm holding them up. Uh, I'm such a loser. What am I doing? The next thing you know, the person's doing tennis instead of riding. So the one-on-one really worked for Liz. And then we could just take it at her pace. And she just did circles. It reminded me of my dad having an unbroken horse on a lunging rope going round and round because I'm standing in the middle giving really positive, constructive coaching. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, I was yucking it up as well. Liz started smiling. The white knuckle clench of the grips was gone and she laughed a couple times. That's when I knew we could go up a gear and do a tighter circle. Which So the challenge went up, the traction would have been a little harder, but she was ready for it psychologically. And on the course of a day, we advanced to bigger bikes, uh, long gravel roads with hills, corners, soft gravel, hard sections. And she left on her Triumph Tiger 800 
a different rider than when she arrived. Hmm. But it was a slow progression. You can't rush this. The mind is a pretty amazing thing in being able to talk us into things or talk us out of things. It takes time. It's interesting. You know, we talk all the time about this sort of stuff. You and I, we have for years now. And I'm always taken by how much of this is part of, uh, well, psychological, really. How much does psychology come into play for you for training? I think it's huge. Um, And I have no formal psychological training or background. Um, I watch my son. He's 26 now, and that is his scholastic background. He's a practitioner counselor for mostly youth who are struggling with anxieties. So he started his career with Zoom during COVID. And uh, to watch him teach any instructor at the school who's having, you know, I would say difficulties getting through to a customer and they're not picking it up at the pace of the other people in the group, uh, most of us look for Graham. He's a wizard at relaxing people. And within 15 minutes, they're laughing and they're relaxed. And he takes them away from the group. So there's no one to compare their progress or lack of progress with. It's just them. So if they stay in first gear and don't leave the initial training area, he could care less as long as they're learning and enjoying. Right. So we've asked him for like tips. How do you do that? But part of it, I think, is people skills. You had uh, you had tips for post crash. So if someone's had some sort of get off, some sort of crash that they find psychological psychologically damaging, which I, I would imagine there's probably some of that with almost anything that goes on. What are your tips? Um, often it's related to the size of the bike. Maybe it was just huge. And that's in our world of adventure riding. Very few people buy a 250. So that's something that I recommend. If your crash was on something huge, go back to your roots. Maybe you started on a smaller bike and you'll find enjoyment faster And you'll be able to grapple with the mental issues of being freaked out on the motorcycle. You'll get that, get to that point faster on a smaller bike. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I always recommend. So if you're coming to the school, we, we start you off on a small bike, like we related Liz had great success doing, but if you're going to buy another bike, because yours was written off, Maybe a smaller one might be an answer. In the same acquisition of new stuff, if your gear was damaged or maybe part of your injury and the length of time you were hurt was because you didn't have really good gear, get some. This is the time now. You've already proved to yourself the value of not, or the value of having it because you didn't. And that will help reduce anxiety because you're encased in all this armor now. So good gear, smaller bike is uh, first steps that help a lot of people. Take some refresher training if it's available to you. If not, at least go with a friend to a big vacant parking lot you're allowed to be and start with small steps. 
just riding around in circles. You don't have to go fast. Practice some turns, some stopping, some moving off. Have fun with it. You can take tennis balls cut in half or buy some soccer pylons and work at some figure eights and cones, stuff you would do at a rider training school and see if it comes back. See if the enjoyment's there before you just jump back out onto the road. Then um, progressive steps. When you're ready, the bike's feeling comfortable. Nice day. You're not cold. You're not hungry. You're not tired. Go for a back roads ride, a light traffic ride. And that does a world of difference than worrying about the stress of traffic again. Because too many people spend too much time thinking about what happened. So if you're in traffic and you had an accident in traffic, when you get back on the bike post-crash, don't go to traffic because you're just going to flash back to that incident. There's no way you can have fun if that's the case. And um, work at it progressively, maybe just an hour long ride. Um, you know, you're, you go on this annual trip to Baja with all your buddies. Every March you go there. Well, if you had a bad crash last March, take a year off. Do little trips. Don't jump into a 10-day trip as soon as you get back on a bike post-crash. The, the brain may not be ready for it. The only other thing is the the riding group often that you used to ride with, may, let's hope they have patience and are welcoming and warm to the new you as a rider because you're going to be a different rider at first. You should be right. a different rider taking it slower. So, you know, a partner who still rides and wants and to, who wants to encourage you to get back out there, hopefully they have a lot of patience. It's like starting with a new rider again. Ride shotgun for them. Block for them in traffic if they're hesitant and are going the speed limit, which is far slower than most people. And I think that'll really help. Otherwise, you need new people to ride with. Okay. All, all great info. I had one, another question I wanted to ask you about because yeah. we're talking about the psychology and being a big part of this problem is of when we crash. What about when you're, t- when you're off-road? Cause you mentioned about how, how often you go down with an adventure bike. Anybody who rides an adventure bike in dirt knows that already. Yes. Those times when people go down, like uh, my example is you often hear people say, I hate sand. I hate mud. Those are two things you, you often hear that people hate. And yes, they're, they're challenging. There's no doubt about it. But what about a minor fall like that? Like say you, you get into the mud, you haven't ridden mud before and you go down and then people start avoiding it. That's kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's, it's psychological. It is big time. So I took a trials riding course 30 years ago and this guy got frustrated with me. He wasn't the best instructor. There was a lot of yelling. But I hit <laughs> the same rock on a cambered turn on a hill And he said to me, you know, you hit that three times in a row, you idiot. What's the matter with you? I said, you know what? That's the scariest part of trials riding for me is turning on a very, very steep hill because I've crashed a lot. And he said, well, I notice you just practice 
what you're already good at. I said, well, yeah, that's fun. He said, in, in motorcycling, you have to practice what you're bad at until it becomes fun. And I thought that was good advice yeah. from a schmuck, but it was good <laughs> advice. And, and that's it, isn't it? Because when you are riding the sand or the mud and you're stressed about it, it isn't fun because you haven't mastered it yet. Or exactly. at least you haven't got comfortable with the idea of what you're doing. Yeah. So again, it comes back to, and I'm honestly not trying to plug my industry of motorcycle instruction, um, but you've got to, if you fall in the sand, there's obvious reasons because the tire moves, especially on turns. The tire isn't where it used to be and it wants to go where you don't want it to go. So you've got to learn some techniques for sand, then try it in very little bit of sand, not a foot deep for a kilometer or a mile, just little sections and use your head. Don't go into the deep ruts that everybody else has made. Often sand is way easier at the very edges of the trail where there's tufts of grass, the ground is harder because not as many people, unless they listen to your show, they don't ride there. Mm -hmm. So there's ways to tackle it. And if you get through it, I guarantee you, your confidence improves. The more you do sand, the more confident you'll become. Until you're like me, you think, you know what? My chief instructor, buddy, I can do sand. And we were on the Cal where were we? Colorado ride a few months ago. Huge expanse of sand really chewed up by MX bikes. And I was on a 12, what was I on? 1250. GS, heavily loaded with tools and parts for everybody. I rode a couple people's bike across the deep sand because they were freaked out by it. Walked back to my bike and promptly dropped it in the sand. <laughs> and I couldn't pick it up. And you're so the I last could, one. I had to beep the SOS horn. Have you heard of that? Like, Yeah, well, you, you've mentioned that before. Yeah. yeah. And one of the young guys came back and helped me lift the bike. And I'm sure he was thinking, yeah, chief instructor, sure. <laughs> but uh, so there, my confidence took a real slap by that crash. Oh, that's, so a, a, that's a really good point. So it happens to you too. Oh, absolutely. I don't care who you are. Chris Birch falls sometimes and he's like the God of what we do. Right. <laughs> so when this happens to you, you, you got to, you do the same thing. You have to sort of work your way back and it probably happens very fast for you, but. Yeah, big time. Because part of your, the little voice in your head is gone. Couldn't have a moron. You just did exactly what you've told others not to do a thousand times. <laughs> That's right. So it's, it's humbling big time. But I think that's part of riding and learning, especially off-road on big bikes, you're going to fall down. There is just, if they, if you meet someone that says I've never crashed, they're lying or they've just ridden a kilometer. Yeah, they haven't, they haven't done anything at all. They haven't done much. That's great, Clinton. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Jim. All the best. That was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Be sure to check out the photo that Clinton has given us in the show notes of Clinton's bike upside down. Well, you have to go there and see it in the show notes. Clinton's website is smartadventures.ca. Hey, 
Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much. Of course, we wouldn't be doing this if it if it weren't for you listening to the show. And, and listen, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. And quite frankly, we need your support. Uh, if you listen to it and you enjoy it every week, just think of what you, what you get from this the enjoyment, maybe the information. We have incredible guests on the show that have so much great information. Think about that. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support. It can be any amount. You can either give a one-time donation or you can support monthly on our Patreon account, which we'd really like if you would. And rewards are like stickers, Adventure Rider Radio stickers and other things. So anyway, drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. The other thing you can do is give us a five-star review wherever you're listening to podcasts. Let other people know about the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Thank you very much once again for listening. My name is Jim Martin and I will talk to you next week. Billy Ward, sometimes known as Billy Bike Truck, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 